Both Lebanon and Iraq have recently held elections, which is good news. Or is it? Hezbollah, Iran's terrorist foreign legion, is now more firmly in control of Lebanon than ever before. And Iraq still faces serious perils, not least from Iran's rulers, as they attempt to continue what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has called their march across the Middle East. To help us analyze these developments are FDD Research Fellow Tony Badran, a longtime Levant expert, and Zalmay Khalilzad, former U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, as well as to Afghanistan and the U.N. This is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. So in the Middle East, where we don't have a lot of elections, and we don't have a lot of free and fair elections, we've recently had two elections, one in Lebanon, one in Iraq. Uh, Ambassador Khalilzad, should we be feeling good about these elections? We should, uh, that the fact that they occurred, uh, the fact that uh, although we would have preferred for the prime minister uh, to win uh, in, which country? Uh, in Iraq, uh, that uh, we have been a good partner with, but he didn't. That just shows that the government didn't manipulate uh, the elections. Uh, the Sadr, uh, one of uh, the political and religious leaders, his party did well. Now the protracted process begins in a parliamentary system that Iraq has, which requires broad support among the uh, various parties uh, that uh, have won the election. Nobody won it outright, meaning got a majority, but this, one of the parties led by Sadr uh, got the most uh, seats in parliament compared to other parties. The formation of government is the key. There are some groups there that are more pro-Iran, militia-linked, uh, whether uh, the big issue is whether they be included in the government or not, who the prime minister will be. So uh, the history of Iraq shows that that process takes a lot of time and usually outside powers play a role. The United States and Iran have been the two major outside powers that have helped the Iraqis come to an agreement with increased hostility between us uh, and uh, Iran. It will be seen, we will have to see whether uh, this process gets prolonged, whether the Iraqis are able to form a government and how quickly and what kind of a government. And I want to, we'll, we'll dig deep into that soon. The point I guess I want to establish here, at least for Iraq, and then we'll come to Lebanon in a second, is that people say, oh, how, ter how terrible everything has gone in Iraq. But Iraq right now, for the moment at least, is probably more democratic than almost any country in the Arab Middle East. Is that not true? That is correct. Uh, I think uh, you've had in the last 15 years... Uh, 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 three prime ministers as a result of elections. They have come in, and when they've lost, they've left. 
uh, or when they have lost the majority in parliament, they have left. Uh, that's extraordinary in, in a region where the same figures rule almost indefinitely. So in that regard, there is that. There is a, a free press. There is civil society. There are many political parties that are active. But on the other hand, some of the parties are sectarian, uh, religiously authoritarian, uh, some are uh, secular, some are ethnic in their orientation. So there are complexities to it, but it is, it is, it is a, quite a change from the history of Iraq and from the, uh, from the uh, history of the, the, the region as a whole. Right, it's complex, but it's not a dictatorship anymore. No, it's it not a dictatorship. For a long time, and a lot of right. other countries are. I'm going to get to Lebanon in a second, but be, which is a different situation. But before I do, Tony Bajran, do you disagree with anything you've heard about what's happened in Iraq? Just, again, broadly, we'll get down to the specifics later. Um, no, generally, I think it's right. I, I wouldn't, you know, we, when we think of democracies, we think about Western democracies. This is not exactly what we're seeing in either in Lebanon or in Iraq, because these are different societies, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, sectarian, uh, uh, maybe even with, with tribal components and so on and so forth. And so the voting patterns are different. Uh, also, let's not forget that Iraq did an election, but it had just come out of a major, major war inside its borders with, with uh, ISIS, which recruited from one of the main components of the Iraqi society itself. So this is there's a lot of tension in that society, a lot of mistrust among its components. Um, and so the ability of the society to move forwards, a lot of people like to use the word democratizing rather than an actual democracy. And so we, we will have to see kind of where, although it's not a dictatorship, where the various components that are going to form the government, uh, uh, how they are going to... Re relate to the sectors of the society, especially among the Sunni Muslims, uh, that have been really beaten up with this war uh, against ISIS. But one of the encouraging things that one saw here, and I think broadly the points made are correct, is that how the Sunnis in Mosul mostly voted for Abadi, a Shia politician. And, uh, I think the, the, in the region as a whole, and particularly in Iraq, smaller identities are politicized, uh, whether you're a Shia or a Sunni or whether you're a Kurd. Which are the three major, major groups in that country, in right. The, in the uh, component. But it looks like there is an evolution, a slow evolution perhaps, if, if this election is a reflection of that, towards issue-oriented politics, away from sectarianism. But uh, one should not exaggerate that. Sectarianism is still strong. Kurdish identity is very strong, and, and so there is a, an issue of not only rebuilding Iraq as a state, but rebuilding Iraq as a nation. Uh, so how the different components, can they reach a compact uh, where they can stay together, whether in a federal or confederal arrangement, or uh, they do not uh, succeed in that effort and some parts like the Kurds go their own way. That's still... It remains as a question. And just to be clear, is it rebuilding Iraq as a nation or is it building Iraq as a nation? One might argue that Iraq was never a nation. It was, it was simply lines drawn on a map. And then basically dictators held the country together the way Yugoslavia was never really a nation, but it was held together for a while. And eventually the Serbs, the Croats, the Montenegrins, they, want, they all were going to go their own way. Still could happen in Iraq, but it is an attempt to build a single nation 
out of groups that are very different, very disparate, Shia, Sunni, Kurd, as we say, many minority groups as well, right. that are smaller, but those are the main ones. That's sort of what's taking place. It's, it's kind of an experiment. It is an experiment, uh, and, and uh, you're right that Iraq was held together uh, by a strong state. That strong state disintegrated uh, with the U.S. invasion. And now uh, they have to rebuild the state and, and they have to build a nation, if you say correctly, That's perhaps. Right. And so how that national compact uh, rebuilding will take place, uh, the Constitution allows for a lot of decentralization. It's a federal system with a weak center. But there are groups who would like to see a stronger center rebuilt and take powers away from uh, uh, the region such as the Kurdish area. There are others who, who believe that more power needs to be devolved towards the uh, towards uh, the provinces. That's one of the many issues on which they have to uh, uh, to come to some understanding with each other. Because if they don't, uh, uh, the the conflict will uh, resume. Uh, we were hopeful after the defeat of Al Qaeda in Iraq that this kind of evolution will take place. It didn't, and then ISIS uh, reemerged. The challenge is, will they accommodate each other uh, where every major group feels that it, its rights are being respected? And if it doesn't happen, the cycle could repeat itself. And briefly, just to follow up on one point you made that is important, in Mosul, which is mainly a, mainly a Sunni city, Absolutely. you had Sunnis voting for a Shia leader, Mr. Right. Abadi. They were doing so because they believed that he would protect their interests as well or better than anybody else who was uh, running for election? Including some Sunni. Exactly, that's right. my point. Right. And that, that was there, that he had convinced them that that was the case. Right. Which is something rather new and rather, one might say, rather encouraging. It is encouraging, and it seems that his use of the army in the aftermath of the liberation and limiting the role of the militias, going there, showing empathy and sympathy f uh, for them, uh, uh, helped them. Uh, to, to, to do as well as he did. Right, I'm going to turn Tony Bajran to uh, Lebanon, where Hezbollah and its allies appear to have won a major victory. Um, is that the case? And if so, what's happened and why? Yes. Uh, so Hezbollah, with a coalition of allies, uh, has now uh, several seats over a simple majority in the Lebanese parliament, which means that they have a lot more leeway through politics without having to use uh, coercion and, and violence, which is something that they have used before to impose their will on, uh, on the Lebanese political system. Uh, now, in many ways, they don't really need to anymore. So uh, they had already established a measure of uh, control, a large measure of control within the political system by having a president that, who's their ally, speaker of parliament who's their ally, the prime minister had already capitulated to all their demands. So they had pretty much a lock on executive uh, power in the country. Now they've added to that a broad enough coalition of allies, including uh, clients of the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, for instance, who, uh, who, are, who have made their way back into the Lebanese parliament. And together with Hezbollah, these, uh, uh, these groups now and these figures have a, uh, uh, a majority. So they can now have a major say in the formation of a government 
in the allocation of ministries in that government, in what the policy of that government uh, is going to pursue in administrative appointments, and at some point down the, the road in the election of another president. So they, they've, on the political level, they've enhanced uh, their control. On the military level, they already had control. So they just added another facet of control within the political system to their existing power. And, and why do you think they did as well as they did in this election? In part, uh, it is because the electoral law that uh, that governed these elections was very favorable to them. It, allo- it, it allowed them to break up the what it allowed them on the one hand to consolidate their own control over the Shia community, which is their constituency. Uh, but at this, so nobody else could compete with them on that uh, on that uh, level. But on the other hand, they were able to com- to take uh, uh, parliamentarians away from other communities. So they were able, because of the law, to get Sunni parliamentarians on the, in their block, Christian parliamentarians, Armenian parliamentarians, uh, Druze parliamentarians. So they were they were able to to uh, fragment their opponent, their local uh, uh, domestic opponents. Uh, they fragmented their blocks while consolidating their own. You know, in, in, in Iraq, we say, as we said, there are the major groups are the Shia, the Sunni, the Kurds. In Lebanon, you have Shia, you have Sunni, you have Christians, you have Druze, other groups as well. Right, right now, if you're in Lebanon and you are not Shia, if you are a Christian, if you are a Druze, uh, if you are Sunni, are you feeling, okay, Hezbollah is going to protect my interests, this is as good as it gets, this is just fine, um, I'm confident about the future with Hezbollah running this country? Um, I don't know if they're confident about the future, but they understand power. They understand who wields it, and they understand, uh, therefore, what their political fortunes and financial fortunes are dependent on. And they understand that they're dependent on Hezbollah. Uh, now, the, the problem with this also is that the United States has maintained a policy in Lebanon uh, uh, pursuing stability in Lebanon. But if you're stabilizing the status quo, then you're allowing Hezbollah to continue dictating the dynamics. And so everyone revolves around the center, which is Hezbollah. And you're saying, I'm going to stabilize this. And so all the players understand, look, the Americans want to stabilize this. The Europeans want to stabilize this. And at the center of it is Hezbollah. So... This is how this is how uh, power is wielded in Lebanon, and everybody makes adjustments. Let's be very. Uh, I want to be just very clear here, and let, uh, on this point, Hezbollah is very much a proxy of the Islamic okay. Republic of Iran. Hezbollah is a political party, but it is an armed political party, and its military forces are stronger than those of the Lebanese government. If you have Hezbollah a client and proxy of Iran with its own military in charge of Lebanon, is it not the case, would you not say it's the case, and then I'll come to you, Ambassador, as well, that uh, in effect Lebanon is now um, a colony, a possession, um, a, a satrapy of the Islamic Republic of Iran? Oh, no, I think that's, that's exactly right, but I, uh, I mean, we could take it a step further. The Hezbollah is also a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, right? right? Mm-hmm. So consider this. If any other terrorist organization in the world, uh, especially the ones that we go to war with in, throughout the world, if any of those organizations had any 
vestige of power that Hezbollah has over a state in the way that Hezbollah does on its uh, control over its army, over its parliament, over its government, uh, this state would have a name. It would be uh, a terrorist state or a terrorist safe haven or something uh, or whatever the technical term would be. And the United States would deal with it very differently. For some reason, U.S. policy has not caught up to the fact that this terrorist organization and, as you said, uh, it's more than a proxy, actually. It's kind of an ex it's a it's a unit of the IRGC, really, is what it is. A unit of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Correct. The, the, the Revolutionary Guards of Iran, which, and, and so and it's an expeditionary force for them throughout the region. They control the state apparatus. And the, and the United States government's policy has been, well, we're going to deal with the state as though it's a normal state, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Zoe. <laughs> Well, I agree with all of what uh, just said because uh, now Lebanon is a, a run by essentially a terrorist uh, group. I, I suspect that Iranian money had a role to play also in the elections. Elections cost money. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, know, I noticed in one of the studies how since the nuclear agreement with Iran, which we signed a couple of years ago, with more money available to Iran, uh, the money going from Iran to Hezbollah uh, quadrupled from 200 million to 800 million per year. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I agree that this requires, especially in the aftermath of the administration's announcement of withdrawal from the nuclear agreement and this uh, new strategy that was outlined by the Secretary of State, uh, uh, that Iran is the central problem for the challenges we face in the Middle East, uh, that we need to reconsider our approach to Lebanon, reconsider our approach to Syria, uh, reconsider even our approach or adjust our approach, if not reconsider in Iraq and, and, and beyond. And I think we have seen the outlines uh, uh, in terms of uh, wish list, but the, the necessary strategy in support of uh, translating those uh, wish list uh, ideas into objectives and, uh, remains to be seen. I think this is going to be very demanding and would require some tough adjustments such as, uh, such as in Lebanon. Let, let's let me understand, tell me if I'm going too far here. What we're essentially saying is that a terrorist organization intimately linked with Iran, maybe even an arm of the Iranian government and Iranian military, is now in control of Lebanon, and we've helped, we, the United States, have helped finance their accession to power. We've helped them win elect this election. We've helped make them powerful. We have supported a terrorist organization, and we have supported Iran's ambitions in the Middle East. Uh, the U.S. government has by 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 the ending some of our sanctions and therefore Iran having and by money. transferring over a hundred billion dollars right, so, you can say it's their money right, it's our money who right, right. a hundred billion dollars no, went just to, to be clear what you just were, to be clear uh, uh, right, uh, right right we right. ventured a hundred billion dollars right. that we would hope that they would use it for the best darn um, healthcare system in the Middle East to build roads and schools, but they decided they had other better uses for that right. money. Is that is that unfair? Yes. Uh, no, not. Uh, I, but I wouldn't restrict it simply to the finance.
financing aspect of it, which, which is true. I mean, we quite literally transferred pallets of cash in hard currency to the IRGC. Okay? We flew it. Yes, we, flew, we hand delivered it. Okay, so there's, there is that aspect to be sure. But the broader strategy of the United States in the region for the last eight years, and I would argue you could even extend it beyond that, but certainly for the last eight years, has been an effective partnership with these IRGC proxies in Iraq. We couldn't quite do it in Lebanon because Hezbollah is kind of a bridge too far to say for the United States because it's a terrorist organization to partner with it. So we sidestepped it in Lebanon and decided to say, no, we're going to stabilize the Hezbollah-led order and we're going to work with the Lebanese armed forces, the, the state military, uh, and we're going to support them so that they could stabilize Lebanon. But at the time, Hezbollah was launching out of Lebanon a major war against the Syrians, killing and displacing Syrians right next door. We were supporting the Lebanese armed forces so that they could stabilize the border so that Hezbollah can have a better time uh, moving its logistics back and, forth, uh, back and forth across the border and doesn't have to worry about its security and its flanks if there was any pushback from Sunni, even terrorist organizations uh, bombing, uh, bombing its positions in Beirut. So we've, uh, we've effectively stabilized the Iranian order in Beirut, and we've done much of the same, I would argue, in Iraq, although because of the multiplicity of players in Iraq, some of them who have their own weapons, be it the Kurds, be it the Sunnis and so on, uh, makes it a little more dynamic. But effectively, we have partnered for the last eight years uh, under the cover of the war on terror that we're fighting ISIS and therefore we need local partners. Those partners have been the IRGC. But the logic of the situation has changed. You could say, you could draw an analogy uh, against Hitler, we joined forces with the Soviets. Uh, against ISIS, we joined forces with the Shia militants, even some tied to Iran. But that is now weakened. Uh, uh, the, now the problem is Iran. The problem is Iranian proxies. And the problem is a terrorist groups supported by Iran. And it requires a radical adjustment. We have recognized the problem, but we haven't yet drawn the appropriate steps, consequences in terms of shifts in policy in various parts uh, of the well, of the region. We can't be saying we're going to contain uh, Iran or oppose Iran and then announce that we're withdrawing from Syria. We can't be uh, disengaging from Iraq while we're saying we're going to oppose Iran. So, and we can't uh, be supporting Hezbollah, Hezbollah while we're saying we're opposing <laughs> well, yeah. Iran. So it's all of this yeah. needs to be brought together. Uh, and I, I and I think the administration is at the very early phases. Of well, early phases could be because if if we if yeah. we agree that we have had policies that yeah. have objectively yeah. benefited benefited Hezbollah, right. which is a terrorist organization, right. benefited the Islamic Republic of Iran, which right. instructs and funds Hezbollah, and which. Um, Chance death to America has that as among its goals mm -hmm. ideologically. The Islamic Revolution of 1979 was all about fighting right. America and its influence in the world. That's been our policy objectively. Maybe for a good reason to fight the Islamic State. Maybe that wasn't necessary to fight the Islamic State. It wasn't exactly Hitler, wasn't exactly the requiring the Soviet right. Union to come in right. and open an Eastern Front. However, then the question is if that has been our policy, is it our policy today? Or are we transitioning away from that policy, or is it still kind of am ambiguous? I would say it's still, uh, the, the jury's out, I would say, because you, you're hearing a lot of good 
signals from the administration. Uh, Secretary Pompeo's speech, uh, for instance, on this on this Iran strategy, uh, tackled the issue of Hezbollah, that uh, that yes. the United States would crush, crush Hezbollah word used, yes. operatives worldwide. Well, okay, that's a very strong statement. What does it actually mean? Is the United States now going to pursue Hezbollah operatives militarily in places, let's say, like Syria, for instance, where they are deployed and quite vulnerable to attacks, as the Israelis have shown? Or uh, is it a statement about uh, financial pressure, that we are going to track their operatives abroad because they have Hezbollah is a criminal enterprise as well as a terrorist organization that spans five continents. They have strong presence in, in uh, Africa, in Latin America, for instance, where they run illicit finance, uh, finance schemes. So is that what the crushing their operatives mean, that we're going to target their financial and criminal operations abroad? We're not quite sure yet. And then lastly, how does that then transfer onto our Lebanon policy? These guys control the Lebanese state. Our declared policy is to support the Lebanese state. If we're strengthening the Lebanese state that is controlled by Hezbollah, we are strengthening a Hezbollah state. So that contradiction has not yet been resolved in the policy discussion. And we and you still have a lot of voices in government, especially in the Department of Defense, who are very enthusiastic about supporting the Lebanese armed forces, even when you're supporting a, a um, uh, an institution of a Hezbollah-dominated state. Because they don't understand that the Lebanese armed forces now answer to Hezbollah? They don't believe that. They don't because, you know, and, and, you, and this is where you get into that dreaded word of nuance because you have to, un, you have, to have nuance when you approach Lebanon. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot of sectarian groups in Lebanon and they don't all f follow Hezbollah. Yes, but name one person that has actively taken measures against Hezbollah, specifically the LAF. When was the last time the Lebanese Armed Forces, the acronym of LAF, has actually taken active measures against Hezbollah? The answer to that is never. Now, my guess is that, well, a couple of guesses. One is that Mike Pompeo, the new Secretary of State, pretty much understands and agrees with what you've both been saying. Two, my guess is that plenty of people within the State Department and the Foreign Service don't necessarily agree and are very much attached to Lebanon. And three, that some of those people, and also in the Defense Department, would say, look, what you're arguing is that we end our support for and most of our contacts with the Lebanese Armed Forces. What you're saying is give up on Lebanon. If we give up on Lebanon, it's over. It becomes entirely, unambiguously a colony of Iran. Is that not what they would argue? As, as opposed to what? <laughs> we ha I mean, we just basically laid out the case that that's exactly what Lebanon is. So the argument becomes, well, you cannot withdraw support from Lebanon less which is a Hezbollah-dominated state, lest it becomes a Hezbollah-dominated state. It, it kind of, it makes, it makes little sense. But the idea of withdrawing, the, 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 the argument from the, the Defense Department actually takes us back to the whole thing with ISIS and the war on terror. They see the Lebanese Armed Forces as a partner in the war on terror, which is a very weak argument because Lebanon is not really a front in that uh, war on ISIS anyway. It doesn't add anything to our capabilities in the region, not even in terms of intelligence. We are the ones helping them. But helping them do what? Helping them protect the stability of a Hezbollah state. So it, it's it, it, the argument makes no sense, but it, uh, there's a lot of people who are attached to it 
uh, unfortunately. And uh, it's going to be, I think, a hard battle to kind of start shifting people's perceptions of what the Lebanese state actually means and what the Lebanese armed forces actually do. So, if, uh, Ambassador, if Mike Pompeo calls you this afternoon and says, what do I do about Lebanon? What do you tell him? Well, one is that you could confront the problem in Lebanon itself. I mean, he's declared the goal of crushing Hezbollah. Do you do it from outside? How do you approach it? Do you uh, increase pressure on Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, in Syria, for example, to entangle them in a protracted conflict, zap their resources, and weaken them? Or do you do that, plus you support some groups inside Lebanon or opposed to it, but you make your assistance very much, keep them on a short leash, conditional on their performance vis-a-vis Hezbollah. It may be, as part of a a plan or a a strategy, some relationship is on gathering intelligence, uh, learning about uh, the weaknesses of Hezbollah, strengthening those who are against it, that you would want to maintain some relations uh, with elements in Lebanon, uh, that you don't give up permanently on Lebanon, but that the goal is the crushing or the weakening of Hezbollah. And as part of a strategy that may have different elements, I can see uh, the the case for some uh, engagement uh, with Lebanon as well. I would, I would actually, yes, uh, the idea of conditioning aid mm-hmm. to the Lebanese armed forces is something I've written about. Mm-hmm. I think that... In other words, the, they'd, have to, they'd have to meet certain criteria exactly. in terms of not being... Yeah. Not be a patsy. Not being a patsy. Uh, no, but I would, I would, I would... Which would appeal to this administration. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, no, but that, that's, that's exactly... Yeah. Uh, the ambassador is exactly right. The president of the United States is averse to wasteful spending in the Middle East on nation-building projects. That's what he had declared in, in, in the recent speeches mm-hmm. in Ohio mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. elsewhere. This is clearly where his instincts are, which is, which is what m- makes the Lebanon policy all the more incomprehensible because it is precisely wasteful spending without any dividends. Now, people will say, well, no, it's actually great dividends. We have stabilized Lebanon and, it's a, and we've prevented ISIS from, from destabilizing it. Well. That's a very narrow definition of what, and I would say wrong definition of what the national interest is in Lebanon. The reason for U.S. aid to the Lebanese armed forces, which started about a decade ago, was to interdict weapons shipments coming from Iran to Hezbollah. It was to protect the border against the use by the Assad regime in Syria and Hezbollah to bring in weapons into the country. What has the Lebanese armed forces over a period of 10 plus years done in this regard? It has done less than nothing. In fact, there, is st- there are numbers that show uh, from, the, from the United Nations force, which is deployed in Lebanon, that whenever their, na- uh, their naval uh, force s- interdicted ships uh, that, are, that were bringing in suspicious cargo, they don't have the authority to, to, uh, to, um, to, to stop them and search them, they refer them to the Lebanese armed forces. They referred in a period of 10 years over 10,000 suspicious vessels. How many, how many of those vessels did the LIF actually uh, 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 declare that was, it was carrying cargo? Zero. So you, ha- you can think that these guys are actually not just not doing their job, they're actually facilitating 
the armament of Hezbollah. The purpose of our aid was for them to stop it, and they have done nothing. So I, I am a very strong advocate. If you, at the very minimum, if you're not going to cut off aid, then you definitely have to condition this aid in order for the LIF, the Lebanese Armed Force, to do very specific Hezbollah-related things in a very specific time frame with very specific benchmarks. Otherwise, this is uh, basically a, a, a fool's errand, essentially. I also infer from what you're both saying that you would agree that Secretary Pompeo in his recent speech on Iran, a major policy speech changing American policy towards Iran, the main thing he's saying is we are not going to enrich this regime anymore. Yes. We are going to tighten the economic screws. We're going to put on economic pressure, and we're going to ask, indeed, I would say demand, that our European allies do the same because not to do that means we, the U.S. and Europe, are financing Iran's imperialism in the region, its control of Lebanon, its a, a desire to take control of Syria, its desire to take control of Iraq, its desire to take control of Yemen, its missile development program, its nuclear weapons program, which the, the, the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, may have delayed but did mm -hmm. not end. Mm -hmm. That We know that for sure mm -hmm. based on many things, not least the treasure trove that That's the right. Mossad brought back from, uh, from, from Iran. Uh, so I guess you would agree that, at the, that what, what he is saying, what the president is saying, is we're going to put economic pressure on Iran again. We haven't had that since the interim agreement in any serious way. Uh, at a time when the Iranian economy is shaky anyway, this makes sense. Right. Well, uh, it makes sense, certainly, and I Iran is in a difficult situation at home. The regime is facing many challenges. Uh, uh, the economy is doing very badly. Uh, political tensions and polarization uh, is there. Um, it may be in a pre-revolutionary uh, set of circumstances. Uh, the potential for instability is, is, is significant. But to contain Iran to succeed, economic pressure is important but not sufficient. I think we need to increase the pressure on Iranian proxies, uh, to increase the cost, that reinforces the economic pressure uh, that we will uh, uh, impose on them with sanctions. And by uh, making it harder for Iran to consolidate in Syria, mm -hmm. to force Iran to confront the choice of either escalating uh, its, uh, the cost substantially or, uh, or adjusting downward its ambitions. Similarly in Lebanon, similarly in Iraq. So I believe that uh, the given uh, the ambition that the Secretary of State uh, talked about, the very ambitious goals, uh, as an instrument, economic sanctions are very powerful. We have fine-tuned it extremely well, but uh, that would be insufficient. We need to look at uh, uh, a broader range of policy instruments that go beyond sanctions. I also think that we are ignoring something that we maybe shouldn't. One, we I mean, we mentioned that Hezbollah is a is a militia as well as a political party has military force, and it's a terrorist organization. And it's a terrorist organization, and it is uh, and, uh, with huge capabilities and we, that could launch a big war in well, the Middle I wanna, East. I do want to I do want to try to talk yeah. about that for a moment. Yeah. But when, because it has these capabilities, we're sort of normalizing that arrangement that it's okay for one political party, not every political party, just one political party in these countries to have the guns, which gives them an advantage that others do not have, and to be supported by an outside power to a great extent between me and Iran. 
What is also important is that the political parties, we haven't mentioned this, in Iraq that are supported by Iran also have a military component supported by Iran. They also have the guns, maybe not as much as the Iraqi military at this point, but it could get to that. And this is an argument that's gone back a long time. When I was on a committee years ago reporting to Condi Rice, who was Secretary of State, on democratization, she was in favor of elections in the Palestinian territories. And my argument was, uh, if Hamas is running as a political party while it has all the weapons in Gaza, it's not, that's, that's not democratization. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ex have that as acceptable. And, and the problem is actually worse. Uh, uh, the, not only that they have arms, but they have money. And, uh, and we have a, a very hard time, uh, I can speak from experience as ambassador to Iraq, that uh, uh, parties that were more liberal, mm. parties that were secular, we did not uh, help them financially to compete in election. There was no level playing field because our laws are such that the only way you can help a political party in an election is to do it covertly. Uh, well, not only to do it covertly, the president has to do a finding uh, which has to be briefed to members of Congress that we are going to interfere uh, in an election. That's the language you have to use against which there is a lot of resistance and it gets leaked, and then we cancel the program. Yeah. So the question is, how do we, when we have elections, uh, how do we not only insist on a level playing field, but that in fact there is a level playing field? I would be surprised uh, to, if, if I, we learn what was our effort during the Lebanese election? How much did Iran spend on the Lebanese elections uh, besides the arming of Hezbollah? How about the Saudis? Did they How much did the Saudis it? spend on it? I mean, they may <laughs> have been they... a little disenchanted with Saad Mohsini, perhaps, for enabling Hezbollah. Yeah. No, the so Saudis I, washed just... their hands, in a way, of it. because <laughs> because Because there was no point, because their local client basically is the one who conceded everything to Hezbollah in order to be able to return as prime minister. And so the, We're talking about uh, uh, Saad Hariri, Hariri yeah. yes, the prime minister of Lebanon. He's a very charming man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not but, a personal uh, issue, but he's <laughs> not, he's, not, he's, he's uh, irrelevant for as far as the United States is concerned in terms of countering Hezbollah's influence. He not only is incapable of doing it, he actually facilitated it in many ways. And so the Saudis said, okay, I'm not going to be throwing good money after bad in this, in this way. I'm not going, we're not going to be paying for this. We're not going to subsidize it. And so they washed their hands of it. One thing that you brought up that I do want to make sure we get in is that Hezbollah has 120,000, maybe 150,000 missiles in southern Lebanon pointing right. at Israel at this right. point. Uh, what makes them think that those missiles need to stay in their silo? Their silos, what makes them think it's time for us to launch a war against Israel? A war that would be, unlike previous wars, not simply a war of Israel versus Hezbollah, but at this point, it's very clear, a war of Israel versus Lebanon, and a war perhaps of Israel versus Iran, if they can manage it, because they will see Iran's fingers pulling the puppet strings. That's a real risk. The region is really combustible. The struggle in Syria, you see already Israeli-Iranian interaction. Uh, Israelis have targeted Iranians. The Iranians have tried to hit Israel uh, repeatedly, uh, and uh, I think if 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 uh, if Hezbollah launches it uh, a war, uh, it would be because Iran wants uh, that war to happen. That it serves Iranian calculations, or it could happen 
because of miscalculation, uh, uh, neither side wanted to start the war, but actions in Syria uh, acts as a trigger for a, uh, for a war, not only, as you said, between Hezbollah and Israel, it's likely to involve all of Lebanon and it, it will involve uh, uh, Iran as well. So this is a, 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 a serious potential uh, for a big conflict coming out of Hezbollah's, the armament of Hezbollah in terms of missiles. Now Iranians are thinking perhaps of producing missiles either in Syria or in Lebanon. And, and it's doing, something that the Israelis may not be willing to permit. Exactly. We understand. Exactly. As so we, a conflict could start from that interaction. Is Iranian effort to establish a production uh, capability. There Israeli efforts to prevent it uh, from happening. As we begin to wrap up, let me ask you, Tony, the same question I asked the ambassador. If you're advising this administration right now, what do you tell them to do about Syria, about Lebanon, about Iraq? I think uh, uh, the United States has a lot of options, some of it direct uh, through its own uh, forces and, and, and tools, uh, others through those of, of its allies in the region who, who are also capable of doing, uh, of doing a lot of damage, as we've seen with the Israelis uh, in attacking uh, Iranian assets in Syria, for instance. So I think the degrading of the Iranian position in Syria is something that Israel and the United States can work jointly. Uh, uh, the United States can support Israel uh, with uh, munitions, intelligence, and other capabilities, and as at, at the same time also uh, position itself so that the Russians don't, uh, who are also deployed in Syria, don't get in the way so that Israel and all the other Arab allies who are on the Syrian border feel secure that the United States is there so that the Russians are not going to be able to do much against it. So that will, that will require, it doesn't necessarily require for the United States to be directly engaged militarily, but it could, it, it, if it wants to, it could, but it has options to work with, with its allies to degrade that, that, uh, that, position in Syria. But, I can, but if you're going to degrade Iran's position in Syria, which I think you're saying is pivotal for the, in terms of the region and not allowing Iran to get the, the imperialist and the yeah. hegemonic control it wants, there'll have to be some American presence in Syria for the foreseeable oh, no future. Doubt. Uh, no doubt. In order to deny them the control. ability to, to, to link these territories, uh, whether it's direct uh, U.S. presence or through proxies, but basically it has to be something for the United States uh, to show that it has uh, uh, skin in the game, but it has options uh, with, with, with its allies to go after the Iranians that way. But that's just taking care of the Syria problem. The missile production problems and the 150,000 rockets and missiles that are deployed in Lebanon, that's a separate uh, issue that, that the United States continues not to have an answer for. Uh, and continues with its policy of kind of turning a blind eye because, you know, we're doing a long-term project of building the state in Lebanon, but so is Iran. Well, we, we've covered a lot of territory in a re reasonably short amount of time. We're looking at a very volatile region. One can understand why one might want to pivot away from the Middle East, but I don't think that's really realistic and possible. It's too important and too dangerous what's going on there. With that, let me say thank you to Ambassador Khalilzad, to Tony Bajran, and I hope to have you back because there's much more to discuss as events develop, for better or for worse. Thank you for being with us on thank Foreign you. Policy. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also listen and explore options on our website 
defenddemocracy.org. If you have feedback for us, praise, criticism, suggestions, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you'll join us again next time. But in the meantime, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.